0: Good to be with you here today. If you're visiting with us, we want to welcome you. Uh, If you are visiting, we'd encourage you to take one of those cards that you see in front of you and fill that out. There are two little black boxes there in the back of the auditorium that you can place those in. Uh, That's just so uh, we can uh, express our Christian appreciation uh, and gratitude for you being here with us today. Uh, our God, as we've been talking about the past couple of weeks, is a creative God. He's anything but bland and boring, whose creativity shines through a kaleidoscope of beauties and marvels and wonders that reveal His glory and His uniqueness. You don't have to look too far in the creation to see the creativity of God. And the crown of His majestic creation, as we read about in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, are His image-bearing representatives, human beings, mankind, designed male and female. Male and female, as revealed in the Bible, are similar, as we've been talking about. They're similar in many different ways, but they are each created distinct from one another. And the beauty of the design is that their distinctiveness complements the other and illuminates the beauty and the glory of God. The differences that exist in God's creation of manhood and womanhood is something not for us to shy away from, not for us to cover up and not talk about, but the distinctiveness that we see within manhood and womanhood is something to be celebrated. And to fortify our homes, as we've been talking about for the last several weeks, we must recover that vision. We must model that vision in our lives, and we must promote that biblical vision of manhood and womanhood to our children and to the world around us so that God's glory may radiate and echo and shine through us, His image-bearing creatures. Now, we've spent the past two weeks exploring the heart of biblical manhood in the context of the home, remembering we're not talking about every single facet of what it means to be a man or a woman in the context of the home, but what we're attempting to do is look at the core, look at the heart of manhood and womanhood. We looked at manhood for the past two weeks in the context of the home, and now this morning we're going to explore the heart of biblical womanhood in the context of the home. Now, I want to say this before we begin. This is a biblical, a biblical vision of womanhood. Some of you might be thinking before we begin, he's a man. How in the world can he tell me how to be a woman? Now, in these lessons, my goal is not to talk above you or make it seem like I have womanhood all figured out. That's not my goal. That's not what I'm attempting to do. This vision of womanhood, uh, it, it doesn't come from my own personal experience. It doesn't come from my own wisdom, but it comes from principles that we see within the Word of God. I believe anyone, male or female, has the ability to open up God's Word and to see the basic principles of manhood and womanhood and understand them as revealed in God's Word. So with that being said, again, let's go back to the very beginning. Let's go back to the Garden of Eden because that's where we see the design. That's where we see God's design of womanhood in the context of the home. As Will read for us a moment ago, I'm going to read again in Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2, starting in verse 18. Let's read verses 18 through 23 of Genesis chapter 2. Starting in verse 18, it says, Then the Lord God said, helper fit for him. So, in verse 21, the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, at last, this is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman." Because she was taken out of man. So we see here in the very beginning that God, Yahweh, is not a God who has no care or concern for the well being of his creatures. As we do a study in many uh, of, of many of the ancient Near Eastern uh, Canaanite false gods in this kind of a culture in the setting of the Bible, they believed they viewed human beings as objects to be used and to manipulated uh, for their own selfish gain. But that's not the God of the Bible. That's not the God that's presented in the first two chapters of the book of Genesis. The God of the Bible is a God who cares deeply for each of his creatures and desires to see them thrive and flourish in his world. In other words, he cares deeply about their satisfaction. He declared, it's not good. It's not good that this man I have created to be alone. I, what I'm going to do, I will make a helper fit for him. Now, Focus with me, if you will, on that word that's rendered helper. The woman was created to be a helper. What does that mean? How are we to understand that? The English word helper here, it it could, in all truth, carry so many different ideas when we see this word. So many different ideas could come to our mind. It could be used as a term of endearment. Uh, a couple days ago, uh, after the big round of storms and straight-line winds that that came through, there were all kinds of limbs and sticks that were in our yard. And Titus was following following me around and helping me pick up the sticks. Uh, and I would say something to him like, uh, "Good job, buddy! You're my little helper." It could be a term of endearment. It could also to ref- it, uh, helper could also refer to one who makes your life easier by the help that they extend to you, but their help is not really essential. And there's all kinds of examples that we could use for that. And the word helper, it could maybe, even in some contexts, even be used to as a term that implies inferiority. So, how are we to understand this word that is... Uh, within the text, how are we to understand helper and the idea that's being communicated within the text? The original Hebrew word rendered helper is azer. And it's interesting that the vast majority of its appearances that we see within the Bible, within the Old Testament, are used to describe God. God is an azer who gives help to His creatures. Three examples of this. One, Psalm 70, verse 5. As you see on the screen there, Psalm 70, verse 5. But I am poor and needy, David says. Hasten to me, O God. You are my help and my deliverer. O Lord, do not delay. So here David the psalmist, he looks inwardly and he realizes his level of spiritual bankruptcy. He realizes that deliverance and salvation cannot be had without the intervention of God himself. God, in this passage, is his azer whose help is imperative for David to thrive and grow and live in relationship with him. Another example in Psalm 121, verses 1 through 2. I lift my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord who made the heaven and the earth. The psalmist here in this passage, he looks up in his hour of desperation to the hills and proudly declares, my help, my help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. The Lord is my azer. In uh, the last example, Psalm 146, verse 5. Psalm 146, verse 5, it says, Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God. So the psalmist says that when God is your azer, Your help and your hope who executes justice for the oppressed, if you read the rest of the psalm, who gives food to the hungry, who sets the prisoners free, who opens the eyes of the blind, who lifts up those who are bowed down, who watches over the sojourners and upholds the widow and the fatherless, then you are blessed immeasurably if God is your help, if he is your azer. Now, the implication of these texts is that God is the one who does for us what we cannot do for ourselves. He isn't just like a cute child who helps us pick up sticks. He isn't there to make our lives easier by His non-essential help. He gives His people indispensable help, absolutely essential help. He is our azer. And in the context of Genesis 2, God creates woman to fulfill a very similar function toward man that God, as God Himself, fulfills toward His people. The woman in Genesis chapter 2 is created to be an Azer, for man. She is an indispensable, absolutely necessary companion for man. We see within the text that she was created as a mutual blessing for them both. The text says it's not good for the man to be alone. She was created so that the design may be complete and that both would be blessed. She was also created as an essential partner for both of them, essential in ruling and subduing the creation and advancing the creation project. The whole implication of helper, Azer, in this context was that the man couldn't carry on this goal of subduing creation, of advancing the creation project by himself. He needed someone. He needed a helping partner. Likewise, she was created to complement the man, and for the man to complement her. The text says, I will make a helper fit for him. And the implication here is that the woman would supply what the man was missing in the design of creation. And logically, it doesn't say this in the text, but logically you can imply, it would follow that the man would supply what the woman was missing. She compliments the man. Peanut butter is pretty good. I love peanut butter. But when you put chocolate with peanut butter, it makes it a thousand times better. Chocolate compliments peanut butter. She compliments him. He compliments her in this beautiful union. And then lastly, she was created to make God's glory shine even brighter than it already had within the created world. The creation of women of woman, it's, it, it's glorified in the text. This text that we just read, this is a glorification of the, of, of the creation of woman and, and, and womanhood. And the implication of this is that God's glory, it radiates. It shines through her just as it shines through the man. So, what I want you to see through, uh, through all of this uh, is that from the very beginning of the Bible, uh, that we, uh, when we open up the pages of Scripture and look in the first two chapters of the book of Genesis, God is presented as a God who cares deeply for His creatures, cares deeply for the satisfaction of His creatures and His glory. He cares for His creatures, both man and woman, and womanhood specifically is not devalued, or presented as inferior to manhood, but rather womanhood and the design that God created women to embrace, it's placed on a pedestal, and it's glorified in the most awesome way within the text. The woman is the azer. She is indispensable. She and the roles that God has given her are absolutely necessary for God's created order to to be pronounced as good. Now, why is all of this important? Why am I I talking about this? Why is this important to understand? Why is it necessary for us to know our theology concerning womanhood? And what does this have to do with the home? It's necessary because there is a dominant ideology that exists in our culture today which tells us a variety of ways, that God's design for women is oppressive, that it seeks to frustrate them, that it wants nothing more but to keep them from reaching their full potential, and that at its very core is evil, and God's people are receiving it, are believing it, are buying it, and allowing it to shape the way that they see the world. In my view, radical feminism is one of the most destructive and anti biblical worldviews in existence today that undermines God's design of womanhood. At its core, it implies and sometimes directly teaches that God's design of marriage and the family is built on a tyrannical male-created system that seeks fulfillment of the man at the expense of the woman. Many within the modern feminist movement claim that women cannot be satisfied through embracing the roles that God created for them in the Bible, but must become like a man if they wish to experience satisfaction and find fulfillment. And in all honesty and truth, this worldview, it's permeated throughout our society, throughout our culture hints of it exist within a good portion of the entertainment that we ingest on a daily basis. It's a dominant disposition on college campuses and even high schools that I have encountered personally. It's a worldview which seeks to tell our daughters that God is nothing but a moral monster who wants to suppress them and make their lives miserable. And I've known many women my age who've bought this And have left the faith because of it. But the truth, and the main point that I really want to emphasize this morning, the truth is that God's design for women and the roles He's created for them are intended to bring about the greatest satisfaction for both men and women. God's design of womanhood, these basic principles that we are going to uncover next weak, of these roles that He's created for them, they're not not intended to frustrate women. They're not intended to suppress women. They're not intended to be oppressive or abusive. They're intended to bring about the greatest kind of satisfaction that, that a woman can experience. But sometimes, and this is just a suspicion I have, so take it for what it's worth, I think we may have a hard time believing that. I think we have a hard time believing that God's roles for women are intended to bring about satisfaction, partly because we've been influenced by this radical feminist movement. Now, I want to spend a few moments addressing something I think is very, very important, and that is this. God's roles for men and women, specifically headship and submission, God's roles for men and women did not come about in the fall of Genesis chapter 3. Let me say that again. God's roles for men and women, as specifically headship and submission, did not come about, did not originate in the fall of man. What the fall of mankind in Genesis 3 accomplished was a distortion of God's design of headship and submission. The result of sin's entrance into the world was a corruption of God's design. Sin took God's beautiful design, God's creative design, and ruined it and twisted it and created an ugly array of perversions that we see throughout the biblical story and we see within our own experiences today. A result of the fall, a result of the fall, what originated in the fall is male headship going in one of two directions. One Dominating men, dominating and abusing women, using their superior strength to suppress women, dominate women, treating them like property or slaves. That's, in fact, if you read in Genesis chapter 4, you're introduced to this man named Lamech who speaks to his wives in this polygamous relationship that was never by God's design. He speaks to them like they're a piece of property, like they're slaves. That kind of masculinity is fallen masculinity. It's a distortion of the kind of headship that God created in the beginning. And the second uh, direction that fallen headship can go is lazy indifference, that fails miserably to lead to protect to provide in the kind of way that God designed another result of the fall is female submission going in like male like male headship going in one of two directions number 1 the perception having the perception of femininity that's that's weak and soft and silly like this weak soft silly little woman that can't do anything for herself That's not the kind of Proverbs 31 woman that we read about within Scripture. That characterization and attitude and disposition and view of womanhood is a result not of God's original design, but it's a result of the fall. And secondly, another direction that that, uh, that submission can go because of the fall is a brazen, sharp, Arrogant female attitude that says, I will never submit to a man. Don't you open the door for me. I can do it myself. These are distortions. These are corruptions to God's design that we see within the beginning. So, any idea you have about male headship and female submission that suggests a woman's insignificance. Inferior value or lack of personhood is not associated at all with God's original design. It's associated with the fall and sin. God's design for women that that we're going to be, we're not going to talk about it, we're just kind of introducing the topic today. We're going to look at it next week. Uh, but god 's design for women, the roles that he's created in the context of the home that we 're going to be unfolding, it originated before the fall, in the Garden of Eden. and we 've kind of talked about this already. men, man as the benevolent leader who leads, who protects, who provides, and woman as the submissive Azer, originated not in the fall but in a garden paradise setting in which both men and women were created to flourish together and advance the creation project, having all of their needs met, living in full satisfaction together. So, what am I saying? What am I saying through all this? I'm saying that God's command for a wife to submit to her husband and to embrace her womanhood Her God-designed, God-created womanhood isn't rooted in a punishment or something evil. God isn't punishing women. That's not the implication of the text at all. God isn't punishing women through His prescribed roles, as so many people think and view today, even in the church. The idea of submission is rooted in her original, God-created, God-designed personhood. And when we get to the New Testament and we read passages like Ephesians chapter 5 uh, and and Titus 2 and and 1 Timothy 5 and many different other passages, we see in them a restoration, a rescue of what was intended from the very beginning. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22 through 25, it says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. These roles that the Bible lays out for men and women in the context of the home isn't a curse that God is imposing upon you. They are rather a restoration of the Garden of Eden ideal. You experience a taste, in fact, a, you, you, you experience a taste of a paradise existence in which sin doesn't exist when you see a man And when you see a woman embracing their God-designed roles. Now, I'm saying these things because many, many women, and I've encountered this personally, many women approach God's designed womanhood, uh, the basic principles of it, and conclude something like, well, to be godly, I I must be content with being a second-class person. I must be content with being humiliated, discontented, and disgraced. Or have also come across the attitude of, uh, of, 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 of submission that people have, uh, that, uh, an attitude that says, I will never be humiliated and disgraced like that. But both of those attitudes do not reflect an accurate understanding of the biblical text. A biblical vision of manhood and womanhood sees men's and women's God-created roles beginning before the fall in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, which are rescued and redeemed as a result of Christ's atoning sacrifice on the cross. What does this mean? This means that God's design for womanhood is intended to bring about the greatest satisfaction for both women and men. And these things that we're going to talk about next week, Lord willing, they're the Garden of Eden ideal that God pronounced as good. They're not a post-fall curse that keeps women broken and discontent and dissatisfied. Now, just a short glimpse in what we're going to be talking about, glimpse into next week, a biblical vision of womanhood, reverence, submission, persistent nurture, and fearless purity. We're going to be unpacking that, Lord willing, next week and looking at it in all of its beauty and purity. And we'll see that the biblical vision of womanhood, it's a deeply satisfying gift. It's a deeply satisfying gift of grace from a loving God Who has the best interests of his creatures at heart. It conforms to who we are, our personhood, our created personhood by God's design. So, this biblical vision of womanhood that, that we're going to be uncovering, it's not to frustrate you. It's not to humiliate you. It's not to disgrace you. Like so many people in the world claim that it does, but it's to bring about the kind of satisfaction that you were created for, that you were created to experience. It's, it brings about the Eden ideal in your life and in your heart, and it brings glory to the God who made it all. This morning, if you have any need, if you're subject to the invitation, why don't you come forward as we stand and as we sing?